Kaura Koto. Welcome to Tehiranga Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, the podcast. I'm Dr. Sarah Dan O'Connor, and I teach science communication in the Centre for Science and Society here at the university. I'm also an ecologist and your host of this sustainability focused podcast. Today, I'm talking to two academics from different spheres about how important clean water is to good health and sustainability within Aotearoa, New Zealand. First, I'd like to introduce our guests, Dr. Sarah Mono de Freudeby and Dr. Julia Talbot Jones. Dr. Sarah Mono de Freudeby is a green criminologist and lecturer in the School of Social and Cultural Studies. Her current research centres on harms to the environment in a New Zealand context with a specific focus on water-related harms and water security. Julia Talbot-Jones is a Green Economist and Senior Lecturer in the School of Government. She also leads the Freshwater Programme at Motu Economic Public and Policy Research. Her research aims to understand how we can better design institutions to benefit our environment, our economy and our communities. What would you say are the major challenges that Aotearoa New Zealand is facing in the water sphere? Sarah? First of all, the threats to freshwater sources and mainly that being uh, nitrates from our farming farming emphasis, um, our production sector. Um, And then beyond that, there is water governance. So how how much we are looking after those water sources um, and then how much we're looking after our reticulation systems um, and who's governing those, how transparent are they. Um, Also climate change, because that's the big overarching issue that's going to affect water specifically. I think that climate change might be felt first through water. Julia, major challenges in New Zealand? Yeah, well, water quality is absolutely one of the issues and that's highlighted in the emphasis that the government's taking in their essential freshwater strategy to try and address declining water quality in New Zealand and it's also emphasised through the three waters reforms um, that are proposed. Because Sarah's already spoken about quality, I'll turn to quantity and say quantity is also a real challenge in the New Zealand context. Um, What we know in terms of facts is the area of irrigated land has almost tripled in the last two decades in New Zealand, so demand has gone up hugely for irrigation water. We're also seeing increases in population pressures from urban areas as well. That's also increasing demand. And then coupled with that, we're seeing the impacts of climate change. Figures from NIWA show that on average our temperature over the last 100 years has increased by a degree already. Our temperature is increasing more rapidly and this has run-on effects for precip or rainfall and also for the amount of ice um, that's stored in our southern Alps and that has run on effects for people who use water, obviously for irrigation purposes, but also urban demand. And what we've seen in the the patterns of volume of ice storage is that as of June 2019, we'd seen a decrease of 35% of ice in the Southern Alps um, over the last quarter of a century. And As I said, that has obvious impacts for groundwater and water through rivers and lakes. And we've also seen significant decreases in the amount of rainfall. So since 1996, the um, five-year trends across all of New Zealand have seen a 10.7% decrease in annual rainfall. And certain regions have been affected even more severely. So Northland for instance, has seen an 18% fall in the amount of rainfall that they're experiencing in that region. 
And so that has huge run-on effects for urban areas and rural areas. Climate change has, for a while, felt like a far-off issue, and I think you're making it really clear that it's an issue that's happening now and likely, if we carry on on our current trajectory, to Mm -hmm. continue and compound many issues, not just around access to water, but actually the ways that we live our lives. Water is something that we often don't think about it until something goes wrong. So when there's too much and we have floods, there's too little and we have droughts. We're recording in Wellington where we are often reminded of the infrastructure under our feet when it breaks and leaks. Um, And then when the water from our taps isn't safe to drink. Mm. And Sarah, I know that you've thought deeply around what happened in Havelock North in 2016 when there was a Campylobacter outbreak. That should have been a big wake-up call to us in terms of uh, what happens when our water isn't safe. Uh, You've been in Havelock North thinking about this and talking to people who were affected. What have you taken away from that situation and the impact on the residents? First of all, it was surprising to me how many people had been affected, whether they were affected personally by becoming ill or whether they were looking after somebody who had become ill. Also, the intensity of the illness I found quite shocking by speaking to people because the World Health Organisation denotes Campylobacter as being something that you will be over in 10 days. And um, I spoke to people in Havelock North a good two years after the crisis occurred and many of them were still ill at that point. Something that was really surprising amongst people in Havelock North was that they had an understanding that their water prior to the crisis was pure and they were quite offended and upset about chlorine being added to their water following. And that idea of pure water, I think, is something that a lot of New Zealanders hold to and it links in with ideas of New Zealand being clean and green, 100% pure, all of that mythology. It's identity politics then. You called the clean and green sort of identity a mythology. Mm-hmm. Um, has that not been true for some time now, that New Zealand has these clean and pure resources that we tout internationally? I think we do in some areas of New Zealand, but the more I get into this work and the more I kind of uncover, I would say that that's a complete myth. It's, it's valuable. I certainly think New Zealand's experiencing um, huge challenges when it comes to maintaining its image of being clean and green. I think it holds up internationally because the realities of our environmental system are not widely known. But New Zealand faces a real challenge for both agriculture and tourism as it becomes more widely known. Yeah, so we have a real opportunity to actually turn that around in reality, I think, so that we live up to that their story. But you're quite right if we aren't willing to accept even to begin with that that's not true we might then turn away from the issues that need Mm. attention and focus Mm. and I I think Sarah you've described your field of green criminology as making harm visible Mm. and I was interested in that in terms of do you think that we need to acknowledge and be aware of that to spur people to action and to keep attention and focus on these issues? Yeah I think it's it's part of our way of life, the way that human beings live in modern Western contexts, that we don't like to see what we do as consumers, really. But I do think within New Zealand, New Zealanders are largely aware of the state of our fresh water. It's just cleaning it up will be costly. And finding solutions is costly, 
And the question then becomes of who bears that cost and who is responsible for paying for changing behaviour and all of that kind of thing. And nobody wants to bear that cost. And that's where the problem lies. It's not so much ignorance anymore or a lack of awareness. Mm. It's that nobody wants to take on the economic burden of cleaning up waterways or changing behaviour patterns to reduce demand. Both of those things need to happen if we want to address quality and quantity. Trying to shift people's attention back to fresh water at the moment I think will be difficult Mm -hmm. and it's just the nature of the beast. Julia, some of your recent research has been around the Whanganui River which was granted legal rights in 2017. Can you remind us about that decision and its significance? In 2017, after eight years of negotiation between Whanganui Iwi and the Crown, the Whanganui River and its catchment were granted legal rights, which imbued it with the same responsibilities um, and duties as a legal person and basically provided the catapult for a worldwide movement in the rights of nature or legal personhood space where Subsequently, rivers all around the world and lakes have been granted legal rights. We're a few years on from that decision now. Can you say anything about what it's meant so far in terms of how the the river, the Awa, is managed? So it completely changed the governance arrangement around that river. The voice of the river and its catchment is now represented by two po, um, which are guardians of the river and speak on behalf of the river for its health and well-being and one of those po have been appointed by Whanganui Iwi and the other by the Crown so in essence it's representing um, the treaty partnership and there's a broader institutional framework that sits below the po that provides support and funding and all of the mechanisms that you need to ensure that this concept of legal personhood and giving nature rights actually can operate um, in a useful way. Does this provide an example for other ways that we might think about how we manage or protect natural resources? Sarah? I think it's a start. I think it's a a door open for thinking about how we do this. Um, I think in that case, we shouldn't divorce it from... Um, the claims of the Whanganui Iwi, it was the longest legal battle in New Zealand history. So it was part of a settlement between the Crown and the Whanganui Iwi too. But I think it's definitely something that has provided us with food for thought. Julia? Well, that was one of my questions in my PhD research, that it was trying to understand whether this could be a concept that could be transferred across Aotearoa more widely. And one of the messages that came through extremely strongly was that this was going to be a one-off, that it was done to recognise the importance and significance of the Whanganui River. It was a way that iwi could incorporate their worldview in a practical way. They knew it wasn't a perfect representation, but it was a practical way of articulating the Māori worldview in law. And one of the risks of generalising this approach across all rivers is that it would reduce the mana Mm. or the prestige and authority 
and status that's been bestowed upon the reverends, catchmen and the people in that region. But in saying that, since then, we have used the concept for other resources. Obviously, Top of Taranaki is now a legal person. Te Uruwera is a legal person. That was actually done before the Wanganui River. So we are using that concept in other ways, but I don't see it being generalised across New Zealand at this stage. Maybe a point that we can pick up from there is thinking about other options for governing water resources. So the past few years we've had a lot of discussion around three waters, around considering how we manage our drinking, storm and wastewater. Would we get benefits from that? I support the move to having a central body who oversees the three waters and drinking water in particular. Yeah, I support that simply because from what I learned in Havelock North, even though local communities can look after their own resources in a way, and, it sh- and they should as well, I can see that point of view, but many of them are not experts in water governance and, and water health and bacterial levels and, and what happens. There can be competing interests that aren't necessarily conducive to clean drinking water at the local level too that might come into play and have come into play. It hasn't worked, the whole local level governance. What what are your thoughts, Julia, about bringing that governance centrally? I think it's a really difficult question. I think some form of reform is needed and I think one of the challenges with Three Waters is that the policy process that we saw in terms of the central government coming forward with a proposal when they had promised consultation was really flawed. And so when it comes to Three Waters, in general, it's not so much that reform itself is a bad thing, it's just I think that the process hasn't brought communities along with it. If you're wanting to take that decision-making authority away from those local organisations, you need to bring those communities along and unfortunately with Three Waters that process didn't happen. One of the ways that the system worked previously that gave rise to the Havelock North drinking water crisis is that the responsibility was dispersed amongst many parties and so, so the Ministry of Health, the local DHBs, the regional councils, the district councils, the drinking water assessors and a number of other parties and so that's called the Swiss cheese approach to governance. And it works in theory, but in practice, and I think the Havelock case really showed this, it's, it allowed complacency to, be, to become embedded into the system of governance. So the idea, I guess, of, of like, okay, I might have stuffed up my part, but that's okay because the next person is going to pick it up and be fine. And I guess the benefit of, of moving away from that and having um, one kind of entity that is responsible for, for, say, drinking water across the country means that one entity is then responsible. And so if things do go wrong, then um, people who are affected by that have some entity to, to, to go to for their grievances and for their compensation or from that point for justice. And that certainly didn't, did not happen in Havelock North. Thinking of those challenges that New Zealand's facing 
what opportunities do you think there are for us to respond? And I'm particularly interested if you see a role or a space for Matauranga Māori, Te Ao Māori in responding to those. Well, I was actually going to speak to Te Manoa Te Wai, um, which is a concept that's been brought forward out of the essential fresh water package. It started earlier than 2017 when the central government's fresh water initiative um, was first floated. So it came out of preliminary ideas and thinking, but the idea behind Tamana Otiwai is you shift the use hierarchy or the priority of use around water. And so if you look at many international models and probably um, elements of New Zealand's governance framework previously, often you see industry or human needs prioritised first and foremost. Um, so you might have economic needs, community needs, and then in terms of a priority, third, you'd have environment needs. Sometimes they're in a slightly different order, but what Tamana or Tiwai does is shift the priority of use hierarchy. So at the top is the health and well-being of the water system. So that needs to be prioritised over anything else. And that speaks directly to a Te Ao Māori perspective or a Mataranga Māori um, way of thinking about the way that we interact and the relationship we have with our water systems. So at the top is environmental and health and wellbeing, then comes community needs, drinking water, and then third is industry use. And so that's a really different way of thinking about how we interact and how we prioritise the health and wellbeing of our system. I think it provides a an example of how we're in the freshwater space trying to integrate some of um, the thinking of Te Ao Māori into our decision-making frame and at least to provide a values-based um, underpinning for decision-making. What makes you feel optimistic or hopeful? Or if it's too much to ask, what do you hope as a society that we're starting to turn our attention and energy toward in terms of thinking about the long-term sustainability of our water? I think coming back to that myth of the whole clean, green New Zealand, I think that, you know, we are attached to that, and I think that that may become a driving force that may allow us to to look at the harms and actually address them in a way that we protect both the image of that but also the reality behind that. And our own investment in that as part of being New Zealanders as, as part of our identity. Also, you know, the whole swimmability thing, New Zealanders' right to swim in a, in a local river. So that might actually appeal as well, yeah. So I'm hopeful about that. I'm hopeful, hope, hopeful about the, the mythology doing its work. Yeah, well, I think there's a lot to be hopeful for, and I think that's what keeps many of us going. What COVID demonstrated um, is that we can become a team of five million when a challenge becomes serious enough and pronounced enough. If we wanted to make a collective decision around changing this, I have hope that maybe we can um, come together in such a way. One thing New Zealand really needs to remember is that there are so many international examples that we can learn from when it comes to governance. And we don't need to always reinvent the wheel. We can think laterally and creatively, which we've shown in freshwater, we do so many times. And right now New Zealand's at kind of a turning point where we do have to make some significant changes, but we're a few steps behind other countries that have had challenges for a really long time. 
one of the things that uh, green criminology uses is an eco-justice approach to just about everything, but interpreting what's happening and also how to go about addressing it. It's about taking a step back and stopping so anthropocentric, so thinking about the world around us as being of us and actually with us as opposed to a resource for us to take from and benefit ourselves in that way is the heart of it, I think. Thank you, Julia and Sarah, for your time and being so generous with your knowledge and expertise. It's been lovely to chat with you and discuss not only some of the issues, but um, some of the ways that we can potentially approach those as a collective, as a society. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. To stay up to date with our latest podcasts, subscribe using your preferred podcast provider. Thank you to Te Koki School of Music alumni Stefan Patton and Kenyon Shanky for the use of their music. From Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, Haere rā.